What a blessing it is to be able to come together this Lord's Day morning. Already the singing has been spectacular. As you and I have lifted together our voices unto God, maybe it brings to our mind the closing two verses of the 139th Psalm. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. In fact, what better way could there be for any of us to begin our week than to do so in a proper directed service unto God? And we're thankful for each and every person that's here today. Our membership at Pippin and the host of visitors that have come our way, we want you to know that you visitors are our honored guests. If you have any questions about our congregation or maybe you're looking for a church home, we'd be happy to talk with you, speak with you, and share with you the kinds of work that we do here at Pippin. Our goal is simply to use the Holy Word of God as our only guide, as our only direction, and find in those instructions that which God would have us to be. As you may notice on the wall to my left, I thought this morning we would turn a bit of our attention to the features of music. We have already involved ourselves in some lovely singing this morning, but as we ask about the characteristics attached to the discussion of music, let us involve ourselves with that verse that Brother Glenn read just a moment ago. As we begin that discussion, these introductory thoughts might, might well be in order. As you can see on this next slide that's before you, I suppose no one familiar with the Word of God would in any way question the importance attached to worship. Jesus Himself, fairly early in His earthly ministry, made this a statement in Matthew 4, verse number 10. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. The uniqueness and the appreciation of worship directed only to God is of vital significance. It was that way even in the Old Testament, wasn't it? When the people of Israel and others chose various idols to worship, God wasn't pleased with that and often reprimanded them for it. Maybe you can see in light of that, the church, of course, is recognized as a worshiping body. I suppose that when you and I think about the church, one of the things that comes to mind are assemblies and the appreciations that come and the blessings that follow in those assemblies, one of which is our singing. Maybe in light of all that at the bottom, we're all well aware that the subject of music and its relationship to worship has often been a source of discussion and even controversy, and that still is the case even today. Rather than using our lesson to simply talk about the matters of the controversy, why don't we use the Word of God and allow it to prompt in our mind the thinking about the kind of music that God would desire and that which is His will and that which is His wish. If you haven't your Bible open to that place in which it was before, please revisit it. Colossians chapter 3, verse number 16 is where we shall devote the vast majority of our discussion this morning. That single verse has so much to say about the very subject and topic that's before us this morning. Let's develop it beginning, however, like this. The opening remarks... I did think it wise to at least preface some of our comments and remarks with the features that you notice on this slide. The subjects, I suppose, touching the matters of music and worship are such that frequently you and I might well be faced with questions. For instance, someone who himself or herself may be of a denomination or may be a neighbor who merely has an interest in religious matters 
may ask, so I hear you don't have any music in the church where you go, or I hear you don't like music. You'll notice they may be utilizing this thought of music with clear reference to instruments of music that are mechanical in character, and so they, by the thought that we choose not to use them, describe it in the ways I've just mentioned. But you'll notice in light of all those things, what about the following pictures? Sometimes a picture does speak volumes. Here is a brief picture. The top left, you'll notice I've placed two pictures or two images on this slide. The top left picture is a picture of the worship service at the Monterey Church of Christ in Lubbock, Texas. You'll notice I did say Monterey Church of Christ. Clearly you'll see guitars, at least three of them if I can count, and you'll notice drums, and you'll see other appreciations that are very much present in a worship service at this congregation of the Church of Christ in Texas. The bottom right is another picture of a worship service taking place. This one is the Viroquois Church of Christ in Viroquois, Wisconsin. I say those two things to say this. You and I can appreciate that there, there are groups of individuals, again, wearing the name of the Church of Christ, who choose to worship by virtue of music very differently than you and I do. Our question and our desire is, of course, to ask, does God's Word have anything to say about this? And not only that, what about the larger context of the music that God does describe in worship? I mention those two, or at least I make reference to those two pictures with the clear appreciation that there are congregations far closer to you and me that also would not have any difficulty or problem with what's taking place there. Back to that previous slide, if we might. The viewpoints attached and those that come with the discussion of this matter of music now leads us to revisit that statement I made earlier. So, by the fact that we do not have a band up here in the corner, and we do not have guitars and pianos and harps and banjos and drums and any of the other features that would attach to a mechanical instrument or music, the clear question might be, why don't we have this? And yea, those large numbers of other congregations who also do not, why not? Many times, many particular answers, at least in the minds of some, might be offered. Is it because we cannot afford them? Is it because we just prefer not to have them? Is it because that by some other means we don't have the space to accompany it? What is the reason? May I submit to you that the reason runs far deeper than any of those things I've just mentioned. It is far beyond the bounds of not being able to afford it or beyond the bounds of not having a, a particular preference for it. There are many people talented and able to play a guitar, a banjo, or maybe a piano. We certainly have those in our congregation of that talent. We choose not to have them in our worship for a different reason. It's very important that you and I have embedded in our heart the nature and the very clear direction for that choice, and that will be much of our discussion today. But with it, come near the bottom of that slide with me. May I ask, what about the issue that touches the subject of authority? What about the matter that touches God's statement of approval relative to anything in our worship? Isn't it true that our God highly respects the issue of authority? And in fact, 
He greatly brings into judgment those that rebel against that authority. It is with that in mind. Let's jump past those pictures and go to our next observation. That text I mentioned earlier, please again revisit it with me. Colossians, the third chapter. If I might take just a moment and at least consider the placement by way of context, you remember that Paul, in writing to the church in Colossae, made the statements as chapter number 2 rolled onward, beginning in verse 11, about the grand character of what is involved in being a Christian. Those who have been buried with Christ, those who have sub submitted themselves to that act of baptism, and as such they rose new creatures in Christ. That's how he begins chapter 3 of this book. That verse 1 begins like this, If ye then be risen with Christ, to those who are members of the blood-bought body of Christ, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, which are where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things in the earth." as you and I appreciate the direction of our life and the focal point being not anything here but yet what's beyond, that quickly has implications. It means there are certain things that must not be a part of your life or mine. Note verses 5 and following. Mortify these things, fornication, uncleanness, and so forth. That is to say, if you and I wish to make it to heaven, these things there in verse 5 cannot be a part of our life. They must be eliminated at once. They must be cast aside. Repentance needs to take place. Remember, set your affection on things above. But Paul still ain't finished. Not only must those things be eliminated, there must be some things put in place. Isn't it wonderful how practical God's book is? It's one thing to take out what's lacking and what's evil. It's another then to input what's proper and right. So notice verse number 12. Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, and longsuffering. Just as surely as we remove those other things, we quickly begin to put in place these things which God does find so sweet and so pleasing. Paul still isn't finished. By the time we reach verse number 15, it says, And let the peace of God... Rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. You'll notice his reference to the one body, the body of Christ, the blessed church of which you and I are blessed to be a part. It is now, with that discussion of the church, the highlighted significance that it has. We now read verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. It is a very fair question then to ask, so what about the music of worship? We've highlighted already the clear significance that it has, but what about the details and the specifics that would accompany it? May I submit, maybe this verse as clearly as any other highlights just what God would wish the worship of His, the music of His worshiping body to be. In fact, as you and I develop it, let's look at the pieces of that verse element by element. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. There's an initial appreciation about the Word of Christ. 
how wonderful it is to give thought to the instruction made available to you and me through that holy word of God. Without it, you and I would have no idea how to please God. For your thoughts and mine are not on His level. Isaiah 55 verses 89 tell us, His thoughts and His ways, much like the heaven being higher than the earth, ours are of no comparison to His, unless He tells us what we need to be thinking. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. That verb dwell literally means to reside in. You and I need to have the Word of God as a living and active part of all that we do and say. You may notice verse 17 is a wonderful concluding appreciation. And whatsoever ye do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. So what you and I do in word or in deed, whether it be by way of teaching or way of action, it is to be by virtue of the name of the Lord. It is to be in harmony with His will. It is to be by virtue of His authority. Maybe in light of that, you can revisit verse 16's beginning and note this. That word of Christ is to dwell in us richly. Isn't that a sweet adverb? Richly? You may notice in light of that rich appreciation that that has the idea of abundance. It brings the thought of extensiveness, if you will. You and I should then look with great care to the Word of God and find out what God's will is for music and worship. It is with those in mind. The next statement is this. Teaching and admonishing. Paul is quick now to present to you and to me this rather amazing statement that is to be a vital aspect of the music of worship. Teaching. It comes from the original word didasko, and it literally means to teach. It occurs so many times in the New Testament. I've chosen a very small handful of samples. As you revisit the Lord's Great Commission in Matthew 28, verses 18 and following, wasn't it there the Master Himself said, Go into all the world and teach the gospel. As Jesus highlighted those statements, we are familiar with the details and the specifics that He utilized. He said, teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even at the end of the world. Jesus used the word teach twice in that great commission. The Christian religion is a religion involving teaching. It doesn't come by small, still voices. It doesn't come by dreams. It doesn't come by diffusion or osmosis. It comes when an individual is taught the preciousness of this Word, either by his or her own reading or the wise instruction of another. Teaching. But you'll notice you and I are reminded here that we teach in ways even beyond the bounds of a sermon per se. When we sing, we're teaching each other. When we come together and sing these songs as you and I have done this morning, we are instructing one another in matters of rich and powerful religious truth, teaching and admonishing. I would ask you to notice in Mark 4 verse number 1, an emphasis there again by virtue of what the Lord did is He so often taught those who gathered to hear what He had to say. I believe even with a moment's reflection, we'd be quick to say teaching is vitally significant. It must not go unappreciated. 
as you look at that next observation, I would ask you to never forget with me the thought of 2 Timothy 2.2. The things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. May you and I take seriously the teaching aspect of our music. It is not to be ignored. But not only that, what about admonishing? That word admonish that is here present in our text literally means to warn, to exhort, to instruct. There are occasions when all of us need a good swift reminder. Maybe our mind has begun to move in directions that are unwise or unhealthy for us spiritually. And maybe the words of a song as clearly as any other can bring us back to the recognition of the danger of that choice, the danger of that movement. Exhortation is a wonderful thing when properly considered, isn't it? When you and I come together as the church, there's a group of people here, 90, 100, maybe more. And as we assemble, we glorify the God of heaven as we unison use our voices and we exhort one another. We know that this world is not a friendly place of confine for a Christian. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. What goes on out there is not friendly commensurate to the life of a Christian. The devil is all about us on every side, and there are enemies that rage and war against us. But when here we have the friendly and lovely exhortation of those of like precious faith, 2 Peter 1 verse 1, those who are bound with the desire of the same destination we are, Revelation 22, 14, Surely in light of that, we can appreciate the wisdom attached to this admonishment. That word is used several times in the New Testament. Acts 20.31, Paul used it rather strategically. It was on that occasion as he addressed the elders of the Ephesian congregation, he asserted to them the significance of admonishment relative to faithfulness in light of never deviating from that word. Maybe another example would be that final text in 2 Thessalonians 3.15. But as we think about all of those, I'm sure we understand basically what admonishing means. As you and I come to the bottom of that, notice the next pair of words Paul uses. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing who? One another. You may notice that we don't have just one person up here singing solo. We don't have a small group of people up here singing in a choir or a chorus as a part of our worship service. Nor do we have selected individuals as a part of a praise team. Because the Word of God says, teach and admonish one another. All of us as Christians have an equally dutiful responsibility relative to carrying out this, this injunction. All of us look forward to singing. All of us look forward to teaching and admonishing each other. And therefore, in harmony with this, which is a text like this one, we strive to carry that out and do so simply. One another actually is a reflexive pronoun in the original language. It literally means not only does one admonish and teach and encourage oneself, but he does all those others who also are in position to listen and to hear. That's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Maybe you'll notice as we come near the bottom of that, we have reached maybe the first observation. The kind of music that the God of heaven demands is a kind of music that involves teaching. 
It involves admonishment equally one of another. Now the verse will go on to tell us more things, but at least this has already prepared us for what's to come. Let's look beyond this if we might. The kind of music that God desires. You'll notice the verse proceeds now to say this. Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now previously we had learned that the music involved admonishing and teaching, but we might ask, so what is to be taught and what is to be admonished? In essence, what is it that specifically is involved? Paul has now gone on to identify with inspiration the following. He mentions first psalms. I would ask you to think about some of the appreciations. You and I know there is a book in the Bible by the name of Psalms, 150 chapters there near the midst of the Old Testament. And as we are appreciative of the messages of that book, we know that many powerful and mighty thoughts are found in its verses. It certainly would be entirely right in the words of our music to use the exact statements of Scripture to actually put into music the things that we read in the Bible. Well, there are men those who are songwriters who have done that. I chose just one example. Song number 176 in, in, our, in our hymn book. You might just want to look at the title for a moment. You'll notice it's entitled, Praise the Lord. There are sections of that song taken word for word out of Psalm 148. So in other words, when you and I sing song number 176 in the book, we are singing psalms. We are singing those marvelous, challenging, and powerful statements of Scripture. That's only one example of a whole host of others that might have been selected. How sweet it is to sing the statements of the Bible. Sometimes we teach our youngsters that way, don't we? They go to these classes in the back and one of the most efficient and effective ways of embedding in their little hearts and minds the thoughts of the Bible is to put it into a song. And so they sing about Abraham and they sing about Noah and they sing about Joshua and they sing about the other features of the Word of God and those will stay with them most likely all the days of their life. If I were to ask you to raise your hand, do you still remember some of the Sunday school songs you learned as a, as a youngster? I'm sure many hands would rise, and yet those songs have, have powerful truths in them. Not only is the word psalms present, he also made mention in verse 16, hymns, H-Y-M-S, hymns. That brings us to appreciate literally a song of praise, a song that praises the adoration of God, that praises the features of His authority, that praises His revelation and that which is His blessing to the human family. It praises Him for what He has done through the Lord Jesus Christ, praising that which would be the marvelous matters of His truth. I again chose an example. In Psalm 100, verse number 4, we think about the nature of the praise that's found in a placement like that one. You and I are admonished as individuals who are interested in things of God to understand how lovely it is to praise Him. And yet, look at the words of song number 539 in the book. Victory in Jesus. Isn't that great? That you and I can proclaim and acclaim the victory we enjoy through Jesus and put that sentiment to a song and sing it into Him. 
That's a wonderful consideration, isn't it? Maybe in light of that, we could look at the third one. Paul also mentioned spiritual songs, didn't he? Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Colossians 3 verse 16. That word spiritual song identifies the following. It identifies a song that relates to the Spirit. That's literally the thrust of the original text. A song that in some way makes use of in reference to the spirit of man and its well-being, the benefit that would associate to it a spiritual song. Again, I chose a simple example. We're familiar with 1 Corinthians 14, 15. I will sing with the Spirit. I will sing with the understanding. Isn't it great to be able to sing with an emotional and lovely spirit unto God? You may notice song number 345 in the book. That particular song is again one we've sung from time to time here, every hour of the day. Isn't that a beautiful sentiment? To sing unto God a statement, a song reminding us about the need to have reliance upon Him every hour of the day. Surely in light of those things, we've learned that our singing then brings us to this. That verse then says the following teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. These songs, these appreciations that we have studied now bring us to this. When we are now asked, so far the music that God desires is a music that involves teaching, it involves admonishment, it includes psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and it involves one to the other. However, there's still some specifics remaining and questions, no doubt, that you and I would be excited to ask. What about the kind of music? Paul now specifies it like this. By inspiration, he says, singing. Singing. We have the wonderful adoration of a text like this when reminding us about the place of singing. Does singing involve teaching? Sure it does. The songs that Brother Adam has led us in this morning, the words of those songs have some amazing lessons within them. Does singing include admonishing? Sure it does. Some of the words of those songs have great warning and great judgment from God upon those who choose to disobey them. Does singing include one to the other as we each involve ourselves in singing? Sure it does. Does singing include psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? Absolutely, when that song is properly written. But you'll notice singing says something else. We now have an appreciation. This is a vocal consideration. No mechanical instrument can involve itself in what you and I have just studied. An instrument can't teach anything. It can't warn. It can't exhort. It can't acknowledge. It cannot admonish. No guitar, no piano, no banjo can do that. But a song can. No wonder we find here an appreciation that the Greek word that's here present is literally the word that means to sing. It does not, nor did it ever, have any reference to any other kind of activity musically except singing. What kind of music does God wish? Singing that includes and involves these matters that you and I have discussed this morning. You'll notice at the bottom of that, 
it goes on to say, with grace in your hearts to the Lord. The thought of God's grace is such a remarkable consideration. And yet you and I know that that grace hinges upon God's instruction. And we've already learned today about singing psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms. Wouldn't it be fair to say as you close that slide with me, we are admonished it's to the Lord. Well, I've highlighted so far in the lesson today the great benefit we each enjoy as we're taught and admonished, but may we never forget that the primary audience is God. When we sing, He's the one listening. He is the one who, in fact, we desire to be pleased and who we desire to be favored by that which we sing and the way we sing it. He is the audience. With that observation may we again say that so many features that the human family might find pleasing. A verse like this one does not permit. Why do we not use some set of mechanical instruments of music? Because a mechanical instrument cannot meet the requirements of this verse. It can't. That instrument is not capable of teaching. It's not capable of admonishing. It is not in such a way that it by itself can make choice of songs and hymns and spiritual songs. But when you and I lift up the fruit of our lips, borrowing the words of Hebrews 13, 15, we can in fact praise God and do so as this verse and the verse that follows indicates. Perhaps one final consideration. As you and I then appreciate the closing sentiments of our lesson this morning, May we be quick to say, there is music in Christian worship. However, it's not mechanical instruments of music. It is vocal music in which we use those vocal cords and the other means of our bodies to literally offer the praise to God with the fruit of our lips. And in so doing, we realize how sweet it is to recognize how beautiful is a verse like this one and that which is its proper appreciation. All those other things like I showed in the picture before. We would not by any means question the sincerity of individuals, but we would question where is the authority in the book of God for worship that way? Is there a verse, a set of verses anywhere that would augment the one we've studied this morning? In the New Testament, we find only eight references to the music of worship, and every one of them, without exception, discusses singing. Every one of them. Does that not speak volumes about what God wishes and what He demands for those that would worship Him in spirit and in truth? Didn't Jesus say in John 4, 24, God is a spirit and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth? Thus, when we sing, we have a desire to do that which is His will, following His instruction, His commandment. No wonder then the final statement is this one. It causes us great excitement, doesn't it, when we each appreciate that command to sing. All of us, by virtue of what God has said, are given order to sing. I shouldn't be sitting by not participating. The worship of the church is not a spectator activity, is it? It's not that we watch someone else do it. It's that we longingly desire to do it ourselves. I included in the middle part of that statement... In many ways, we think that that seems absurd in many other areas of, me, of worship, don't we? How would you feel about having someone else take the Lord's Supper for you while you sit and watch? 
look at how perfectly and how professionally that person can break the bread. You and I would think that's nonsense. We all appreciate our individual participation. What about giving? Does God authorize me to permit someone else to give for me or for you? What about the appreciations of prayer? Can someone else pray for me? We know we each are to participate. Apply that to music. Can I let somebody else do my singing for me? Can I let someone else sing in my place? The obvious answer is no. I need to use my voice and my bodily abilities to lift up my character and praise unto God and sing with spirit and with understanding. May we each appreciate the participation in the song service and look forward to those times when we gather on Sundays and Wednesdays to do this. It really is a sweet, sweet savor unto God, isn't it? In conclusion to the lesson this morning, the music of worship is very significant, isn't it? It really is a remarkable thing. I hope we've each been encouraged. And if today there would be an individual who is not a member of the body of Christ, maybe someone who has questions about the nature of the music that we have or don't have, we'd be honored to study with you and talk with you and speak with you. By the same token, if there's someone here who has never obeyed the sweet name of Jesus, and maybe the thought of music doesn't immediately rest on your mind, but you know that you're a sinner and you know that the blood of Christ is the only thing that can, can forgive your sins and you'd like to obey the gospel today. That obedience demands that you believe Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His great name as the Son of God, and then submit yourself to be baptized. We'd be happy to do all of that in just a matter of moments this very morning. If we could assist you in that way, please let us know. If you need to come back to your first love, why not, in fact, make confession of errors known in a public way and let us pray to God for your restoration and your forgiveness. And we'd be happy to do that too. If we could be of any assistance to you this morning, why not come even now while together we stand and while we sing?